What you'll see at the National Museum in Dublin can help you appreciate 7,000 years of Irish history. It tells us just something about the sophistication of this culture. Coming up, Fintan O'Toole recommends some of Ireland's most important historical objects for us to view. After sculpting his masterpiece, David, Michelangelo was at the top of his game. He was a young David, he was the best sculptor on earth, and he was ready to take on the world. But as his fame grew, so did the issues that complicated his life outside the studio. The man was a mess. Gene Openshaw takes a fresh look at Michelangelo at midlife. And linguist Ross Perlin reminds us how the world comes together in New York City. You can experience all these languages and cultures within just a few blocks of each other. He's working to preserve mother tongues that are in danger of dying out with a dwindling number of native speakers. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. You can hear hundreds of languages being spoken on the streets of New York City. In a bit, the co-director of the Endangered Language Alliance tells us about their race against time to map little-known languages across the most linguistically diverse city in history. And we'll look at the midlife crisis that Michelangelo had to endure some 500 years ago. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves at a very special place in Dublin. Ireland's National Museum is one of my favorite museums anywhere. Its rich artifacts, from ancient gold to exquisite medieval brooches to reminders of their tumultuous early 20th century history, help provide a foundation for getting to know more about Ireland and to get more out of your travels to the Emerald Isle. Irish writer Fintan O'Toole worked with the National Museum of Ireland to document, quote, a history of Ireland in 100 objects. These historic artifacts are the ones that that help us understand some 7,000 years of Irish history. Fintan is one of today's best-known chroniclers of Ireland. He writes a twice-weekly column for the Irish Times, and he joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to help us better understand Ireland with a visit to its National Museum. Fintan, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, Rick. You know, I'm an American who visits Ireland as a tourist and a travel writer, and I just really find the National Museum is a national treasure. It's free, it makes Ireland's ancient heritage vivid, and I really think it's a a great first stop for any trip around Ireland to really better understand its kind of its fabled and complicated past. Uh, What's your take on the importance of this museum to your country and to travelers? I really agree, Rick. You know, it's a terrific place to go. As you say, it's free, so it means you can kind of drop in and out. It's in the city center. You know, if you're anywhere in around the city center, if it's raining, just go in. You know, you can spend 10 minutes, 15 minutes, or you can spend three hours. But it's also quite small, concentrated, you know, so it's not like one of these museums where you just get absolutely exhausted at the end of the day because there's just so much stuff. You know, Fintan, soggy marshes and peat bogs are a real blessing if you're an archaeologist in Ireland. I mean, that's a perfect way to preserve precious old objects, isn't it? It's an extraordinary thing, you know, and so there's even some things in the National Museum like ancient fish traps, which should not exist because they should have rotted away a long time ago, but the bogs are a preservative. And one of the most extraordinary things they preserve, and you can go into the National Museum and see these, are bodies. I call them bog bodies. They are bog bodies. And also what brings it really alive is how they were killed. A lot of these people were were sort of sacrificially murdered and then tossed into bogs, weren't they? Yeah, the the deal for being a king was you, you got your fancy hair gel and you didn't have to do any work. But if the crops failed... Or if the cattle got disease, it was your fault because you were married to the land. That was the idea. The king was married Ah. to the land. 
if things were not working, it meant that the goddess of the land was pretty pissed off with you and you had to be given back to the land. So you were strangled, you were drowned and you were stabbed. You were killed three times. Their, their bodies were preserved, but so were their mortal wounds. Yes. Now, right next to those uh, bog bodies, there's a reconstructed passage tomb. And I find that Ireland has, you know, we all go to England for Stonehenge. There's some amazing prehistoric stonework and tombs and so on in Ireland. Most, I think, importantly, just north of Dublin, you've got Newgrange and Nowth. But if you see the reconstructed passage tomb there in the National Museum, it sort of preps you for, for what these things are all about. It does give you an idea of how important these structures were in the landscape and to the people who built them. You know, you have to remember the amount of effort that went into creating these things. I would really recommend you having a look at the reconstructed one, the National Museum, and then just going up. It's only about 20 miles from Dublin. It's kind of our Valley of the Kings. You have these, and these are Neolithic. These are some of the oldest existing structures in the world. These are from before the pyramids. Well, you know, you and, say the Valley of the Kings, and, and they're as old as the, as the pyramids they, in Egypt. They are. Some of them are older even, you know. And there's one, uh, the fam- most famous one that you can go to is Newgrange. And Newgrange, to me, is still heart-stopping, right? Because they discovered in the 1950s when they were excavating it, they suddenly discovered. So it's a passage, a dark passage, you yeah. know, underground, goes in, opens up into a chamber. And it's very interesting. They bury the bodies in, in the chamber. But do I understand this right, that the passageway is lined up to the setting sun on a certain solstice? So one time of the year, assuming there's the sun is out and it's not cloudy, the sun will actually shine right down that passage to the center of this round pyramid and do something really exciting to the mortal remains that are in the center of that tomb. That's exactly it. And it's it's the most beautiful image. And it, whatever culture you're from, it touches your heart because you know what it's about, right? So it was the darkest day of the year, yeah. the winter solstice. The sun is dying. This was the fear of these people, right? The sun was everything. Yes. The sun is dying. And what do you do? You capture the sun. It comes in through a light box. You remember the, the sophisticated astronomy of these people? They could figure out just for that one day, the sun comes up the passage. And this is 5,000 years into, ago. Yeah. And it, it lights up the, the dead again. And it's, you know, the, the year is turning. It's coming back. The sun will come oh. back for another year. It's a very, very beautiful piece of art, I think, really. Fintan O'Toole's our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. He's a columnist with the Irish Times and a professor of Irish letters at Princeton. Among the dozens of books he's written, A History of Ireland in 100 Objects highlights the artifacts that helped define Ireland over more than 7,000 years. They're displayed at the National Museum. Fintan's most recent book explains how and why Ireland's changed since he was born in 1958. It's called We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland. We have links to his work at ricksteves.com radio. And it's so fun to have you with us today, Fintan, to talk about this museum that I think we both uh, know and love here. When we're talking about these passage tombs, uh, the Hill of Terra is a special place to the whole culture of Ireland. Um, from ancient times until modern times. And you'll, you'll see that word a lot. A lot of the artifacts at the museum come from Terra. Tell us what the importance of the Hill of Terra is to the Irish civilization. So ancient Ireland did not have cities, right? So you're not talking about a kind of urban civilization, very, very rural agricultural society. So Tara was the most important gathering place, sacred gathering place, and, and it, it was... I suppose regarded as the centre of Ireland, as the heartbeat of Ireland, you know, as, as the spiritual centre. So there was a kind of high king, and the high king was based at Tara. 
more, I think, a kind of ritual or spiritual leader than a political one uh, very often. But Tara was really seen as the place where the whole Irish community could look towards. One thing that I find unforgettable about the National Museum when I'm when I'm venturing into Ireland's past is the treasure trove of gold that's there. There's so much ancient gold, prehistoric gold. It's like 4,000 years old, and it's exquisitely worked. Tell us about this gold that we'll see at the National Museum in Dublin. So it's one of the great collections of ancient gold, as you say, from from Europe. I mean, it just so happens that gold, there was an amount of gold that was uh, easily accessible even to relatively primitive technologies. You know, they could they could get it in the rivers and they could there was some kind of shallow rock that they could get. So they actually had, by the standards of the time, a lot of gold. Hmm. So, of course, they wanted to show off the bling. Yeah. What's amazing is the quality of some of the work. There's a famous form that they used called the lunula, which is a it's like a kind of moon-shaped collar that goes around like right. the, the shoulders and down on the breast. And if you look at the largest ones of these, there's one called the Gleninchin Turk. And I was looking at it, and I was trying to write something about it, and I, I was asking about this, and a very distinguished goldsmith told me there were eight different techniques. And he said, there's nobody around now who could do those eight techniques. Wow. Now, these are 4,000 years old. 4,000 years if old. If I can envision know. it, it's a broad necklace hammered flat, kind of the crescent shame thing that would hang around your neck. And then it might even have matching earrings, right? Absolutely. And you can imagine the power, right? So oh, yes. You, you, you can imagine in this society where the priestess or the priest or whoever's wearing this thing... <laughs> And of course, it's going to come out. It's going to catch the sun. Yes. And it's moon-shaped. So it, it seems that some of these things, these gold objects, were meant to represent both the sun and the moon. Oh. The moon represented the female principle and the sun, the male principle. Well, whoever so whoever's that. wearing these things is sort of a you know superhero figure who's both male and female. And I'd be eating out of the palm of their hand, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Absolutely. You would now, do whatever they told you. The, the most exquisite souvenir of the Irish past, I think, has got to be the Terra Bro. And it goes back to the year about 700 A.D., so not as old as this other stuff, but still, when Western Europe was rutting in the mud and Rome had fallen, Ireland was able to make this exquisite and minuscule piece of art that people were so amazed by it, they thought it couldn't even be done by humans. It must be the work of the fairies. Tell us about the terra brooch and why that's important. So again, it's exquisite metalwork, as you say, the number of techniques that are used in it. The detail, you know, again, it's obviously it was a very, uh, meant to be a very powerful object. It was going to be worn by somebody of extremely high status. But it tells us just something about the sophistication of this culture. Before the Normans come in, before the British come in, you you have a, a culture where the levels of metalworking, which if you think about it, that requires generations and generations of skill to be preserved. It requires mm-hmm. knowledge of the materials. It requires techniques that have been honed down to, to levels of, of elegance. Fintan O'Toole wrote the book that accompanies the exhibit on the history of Ireland and a hundred objects at Ireland's National Museum in Dublin. You can link to his earlier conversations with us in our show archives at ricksteves.com radio. Fintan We've just talked about a couple of the artifacts at the National Museum. We want to remind people it's free. It's in Dublin. As you said, you can just pop in when you feel like it. And let's finish off our sweep through all of this 
with uh, something much more modern. Ireland has had such a stirring modern history as the people of Ireland have worked and worked for their independence. What is something in the museum that might inspire us from the modern side? So maybe something people might like to look at. It might sound very grim, but there's a there's a shirt, an ordinary working class person's shirt, <laughs> but it's bloody. And it's a shirt that was worn by a guy called James Connolly when he was executed by the British in 1916. You know, He was one of the leaders of the 1916 Rising, which was a kind of madcap enterprise by these guys who, you know, thought they had to rise up against the British and, and the British kind of executed them in cold blood. But it's... It's also sort of inspiring because, uh, you know, they were right. They failed. They were executed. But they felt somehow that, you know, by doing what they did, by sacrificing themselves, they would inspire Irish people. So it's meant to inspire in a way. uh, And it's not really – it should feel very morbid. But actually, to me, it feels like it's a reminder that we enjoy what we enjoy because people went before us who who took risks and who sacrificed themselves and who had ideals. And we want to live up to those ideals, I hope. And an exhibit like that is a reminder that Ireland's National Museum is a place to go to get a broad appreciation for the story of the Irish people. Fintan O'Toole, thank you so much for joining us, and best wishes with your teaching, and and thanks for sharing. Thank you so much, Rick. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. We'll hear about languages on the brink of dying out a little later in the hour. But first, we take a closer look at the midlife frustrations that even an artistic genius like Michelangelo had to face. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Virtually every tourist has Michelangelo's David, his Pietà, and the Sistine Chapel on their bucket list. Michelangelo's staggering genius makes him seem larger than life, almost divine. What few travelers realize is how human Michelangelo actually was and how much he, like so many of us, struggled with his art and with everyday life. Gene Openshaw is a friend and fellow tour guide who I've collaborated with since the day we graduated from high school. Gene's co-authored many of my books and TV scripts, and any time I have a writing project with a focus on art or history, Gene's the guy I want at my side. Gene has just finished a multi-year project, writing a book that sees Michelangelo as the flawed man he was, as it traces the long and winding story of Michelangelo's perhaps most audacious project. The book's called Michelangelo at Midlife, Chasing the Tomb of Julius II. And Gene joins us now for a little quality time with perhaps the greatest artist of all time. Gene, thanks for joining us. Hey, Rick. Great to be here. Now, Gene, the framework of your book is the fitful and frustrating project that I just mentioned, a project that dominated so much of his most productive years. Can you kind of give us a quick review of the arc of Michelangelo's life and then how this project fit into that arc? So you want me to give the entire <laughs> arc of Michelangelo's 89-year life words. in 40 words or less. Yeah. Well, let's start with chapter one. Michelangelo, Michelangelo Buonarroti, was born in Florence in humble circumstances. His dad wanted him to follow in his footsteps and be a a minor bureaucrat, Uh but Michelangelo was determined to be an artist. Fortunately for Michelangelo, he was plucked from obscurity at the age of 14 by none other than the most famous man in Europe, Lorenzo the Magnificent, who brought him into the Medici household where suddenly, overnight, Michelangelo was dining with popes and kings and soaking up the Renaissance ambience. He left at age 19. He went traveling all over Italy Uh in search of his artistic style. 
It finally led him at a very young age to his first great triumph, the Pietà that you Uh mentioned. Overnight, he was a sensation. It debuted in St. Peter's for Jubilee year 1500, and hundreds of thousands of people filed by, and they went, who sculpted this, this realistic vision of heaven? And they all learned who did it. And you probably know why they knew. I love it. On that strap across Mary's chest, it says, by Michelangelo Boronote from Florence. From Florence, exactly. He was so proud of his hometown. With that success, he returned to Florence, where he was faced with his greatest challenge, which was to sculpt a block of marble that was so big and so flawed, every other sculptor had rejected it. But Michelangelo took on the challenge, brought it into his studio, And two years and 10,000 chisel strokes later, he brought it out. It was 17 feet tall, epic, optimistic, beautiful. It was David. And epic and optimistic and beautiful. That's the Renaissance. It's the Renaissance, and it was Michelangelo, because that's what ends this first chapter of his Mm -hmm. life. After he finished David, he was 30 years old. He was a young David. He was the best sculptor on earth, and he was ready to take on the world. And then he got tangled in his tomb. And then, dot, dot, dot. And then he got tangled in his tomb. Wow. And then frustrations, wasted years, and a fascinating story that reminds us of the humanity of this genius. Yeah, Michelangelo faced, you know, there were so many things in the 40 years that he spent working on the tomb. The tomb was supposed to be his magnum opus, Mm -hmm. but he kept getting detoured and delayed. One of the detours, the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo hated painting the Sistine Chapel. He wanted to be sculpting his stupid tomb for Julius II. Yeah, you have a, a line in your book that I really like, the Italian line, not my art or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Non era mia arte. It's not my art. Michelangelo thought of himself as the sculptor of a tomb, not as some painter. Painting was for wusses. And it was kind of, it gets into exactly who Michelangelo was. To it, Michelangelo, a painter was putting on paints like someone puts on makeup to cover their flaws. What Michelangelo wanted to do was sculpt, stripping things away to reveal the truth within. Wow. And when we look at Michelangelo's paintings, I've heard him nicknamed a painter with a sculptor's chisel. (laughs) Exactly. You know, they look like sculptural characters. You, You come away thinking, wow, there's a lot of mass there. And that's, that seems to match his very personality. He wanted the truth. He wanted gravitas. He wanted, he wanted substance in what he did. Now, Gene, reading your book, it was so refreshing just to get my mind into what it was like to be Michelangelo's everyday life. I mean, poor or rich, happy or sad, celibate, uh, paycheck to paycheck. How can we better understand the man? Yeah, as you put it in the introduction, we think of him as this divine genius, But he was a real human being. In fact, as I did research on this, he wasn't just a regular human being. He was pretty dysfunctional. The man was a mess outside of his studio. He was often paranoid. He was jealous of other painters' works or other artists' works. He had a boss that was kind of intimidating or, or frustrating. He was building that tomb for Pope Julius II, and the two of them butted heads. Yeah. Yeah, they were a couple of alpha males who were, who were trying to battle over this artistic vision. And i got to say the fun thing about your book is it's sort of the, the story of a guy named Sam 500 years later who loves Michelangelo. He's a tour guide, and he's sort of 
a parallel struggling artist with the same sort of frustrations and dysfunction in his life. Yeah, the hope of the book is that we see Michelangelo's world through the eyes of this modern man, Sam. And it gives us an insight into how Michelangelo was, in his way, very much like the rest of us. Gene Openshaw is with us today on Travel with Rick Steves to celebrate the life of Michelangelo and the book Gene's written that centers around the artist's genius or madness over a commissioned work that complicated Michelangelo's life. It's called Michelangelo at Midlife, Chasing the Tomb of Julius II. Gene, to know the creative process that goes into all of these masterpieces that we know and love and don't really fully understand, it's amazing when you take these X, time and time again in my travels, I, I learned if they do an x-ray, they realize that before the genius was done with this or that painting, it did this instead of that, but then something happened in his life and he changed his, his mind. And there's a good example of that. That's a great example of it. And frankly, that's what the book is about, chasing the tomb of Julius II. It's because... It's a bunch of scraping off and redoing. It's a bunch of redoing as Michelangelo (laughs) constantly redid the design. I I learned so many cool little phrases in the book in Italian, and and one of them was non finito. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Unfinished. Unfinished. Yeah, so much of the, the works that we do know of Michelangelo from the tomb were left unfinished like the great prisoners that stand next to David in the academia. They're sort of the classic example of unfinished, and then you could almost think that, well, maybe emotionally he was finished with them. Maybe he had freed them from the rocks like he was so wanting to do, just chisel away the excess and show what's inside of those rocks. Exactly. He had famously, Michelangelo said, that he wasn't sculpting the figure. He was just simply liberating the figure inside of the block of marble. Now, speaking of blocks of marble, I was fascinated of your account of how Michelangelo, what, spent eight months up in the quarries, uh, just getting to know the marble and and choosing the right pieces of marble and then having tons of it shipped down to Florence or Rome. Tell us about the Carrara, first of all, and why Michelangelo would be so enamored with the quality of the marble and what he found at Carrara, which, by the way, is just up past Pisa uh, by the Italian Riviera. Just, From the Italian Riviera, you look up into the mountains and it looks like, oh, it, it snowed last night. But those exactly. are just the exposed marble quarries. If you came in by boat, you're just, you're just coming <laughs> into another Mediterranean resort, and then you see these mountains up there. Right. But once you get up there, the reason they're so famous is that since the times of the ancient Romans, they've quarried it because the quality of the marble is just simply so good. It's pure with the crystals are symmetrical, so there's very few impurities in it. Mm-hmm. It's very soft. so It's soft enough to sculpt, but hard enough to last for 4,000 years. And so since the beginning of sculpting, that's where people went, is up into these marbles mm. to do the very laborious work of quarrying. I love how you wrote that at the quarries, you can find the DNA fingerprints of some of the world's greatest art, going all the way back to Trajan's column from ancient Rome. Trajan's column came from Carrara. And what we also know by, by looking into it, Michelangelo's own Pietà, if you can picture that in your wow. mind, bone white, perfect, pure, That came from the very quarry that Michelangelo quarried his rocks for the tomb. And if you're an artist who knows you're great and you've got lots to contribute and only have so many years, and this next project is going to take a couple of them, you don't want to grab a hunk of rock or a hunk of marble that looks, as you described it, like frozen dirt. You want to get some good marble. (laughs) Michelangelo, it said, had the perfect ability to choose that perfect marble. Um, They said he he had like x-ray eyes. He could look in there and see the impurities. When they asked him 
you know, where did you get this this thing? He said, I was born with it. You could call it a bit of a romantic streak through the Renaissance genius of Michelangelo. Gene Openshaw has written a historic novel around a traveler's quest for Michelangelo's most troubled work. His book is called Michelangelo at Midlife. We have links with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Hey, Gene, when I was reading the book, it occurred to me that there's sort of a brotherhood of artistic genius through time, and it's fascinating how different these amazing creative individuals seem to communicate with each other even if they weren't living at the same time or the same place. That was essential for working on the tomb because Michelangelo was inspired by his brothers in the ancient world, and that's what he wanted the tomb to look like, is, is ancient Greek and Roman statues. But he was also looking to the future. And as you're working on a long project like this, eventually Michelangelo probably came to realize that projects can take a lot longer. You can't do everything yourself. And by the time Mm. he was an older man, Michelangelo decided, if I want to finish this stupid tomb, I got to hire some of the best artists Mm. in the world. And he just let the assistants to do the grunt work Mm -hmm. while he stood by and supervised. And it's fun to remember during this period that this was the Renaissance and proudly inspired by the ancients in a celebratory way coming out of the relative darkness of the Middle Ages. Now they were going to be like the ancients. And I I always feel like people like Raphael and Michelangelo and Leonardo, they had a close touch by people who inspired them 1,500 years earlier. What, What was Michelangelo's feeling about the torso that they uncovered, that's the Belvedere torso and so on? Yeah, Michelangelo was very inspired by a, by a great work that you can see in the Vatican Museums that shows a muscular naked man, and he used that pose with his work, that slight turn. You know, you picture a man sitting on a, on a chair, and then someone walks in the, into the room, and he turns to look at that man. That's the pose, that very planted but natural pose that Michelangelo began to put into works, so he's bringing doing- them to life that eventually got even more dramatic and more dramatic in later Baroque works. But you've got to remember, really, Michelangelo, it wasn't so much Michelangelo's artistic vision. What was so interesting was Michelangelo the man and how he was trying to be the perfect Renaissance man, but he wasn't. He was consumed with jealousies. He had a messy love life. People rarely talk about that. He seemed to have an infatuation with a young man in Rome. Then he had an infatuation with a celibate nun. And he he was connecting with them on an intellectual level, but seemed to have an inability to actually make that kind of human connection so satisfying to people. That's fascinating to think of a man who's got a command of the art and who everybody wants in his court, who has a tough time over lunch talking with somebody he's infatuated with. Outside of the studio, he was, yeah. (laughs) Just a klutz, a nervous guy. He was a nervous guy. And Michelangelo, what we hadn't mentioned, he's painter, he's sculptor, etc., but he was also a pretty darn good poet. And when you read his poetry, you can see the insecurities that he had Uh. and the aspirations he had that were frustrated. Gene, you called the book Michelangelo at Midlife, Chasing the Tomb of Julius II. Well, we've talked about Julius II, but... What about midlife? Well, the tomb occupied Michelangelo's midlife years. He started it at age 30. He finished at age 70. He started as a young man. He finished as an old man. 
And during those 40 years, he experienced many of the same kind of struggles that so many of us go through in our midlife years as we decide, what am I doing here? What is my life about? And is the work that I have done going to be satisfactory? For Michelangelo, he sunk into a deep depression, even to the point of suicide. And as the book talks about, he had to find his way out of that pit. Out of that midlife crisis. Out of that, essentially, a midlife crisis. Gene, you could have written just a straight historical account of Michelangelo and the tomb of Julius, but you turned it into a novel as well, where you've, you've laced in your struggles and, and other struggles of tour guides and creative people you know. Why did you do that? Well, as I learned more about the tomb, it became clear to me that the, the story of Michelangelo dreaming up a big tomb and struggling with it and then having to deal with those struggles, isn't that kind of very much a metaphor for the kind of lives that most of us live? And to think you know, that the great artists that we admire were above that is kind of uh, wrong and nonproductive. Yes, because artists are people too. You know, I worked in the arts for a long time and, you know, hey, has uh, anyone out there heard of me? No, they haven't. Because y you work, you work, you try to get your work out there. And even, even those of us that aren't Michelangelo's, or especially those of us that aren't Michelangelo's, oftentimes don't succeed. But even if you're not an artist... You know, many people have plans in life. And then, like the boxer Mike Tyson famously said, everybody's got a plan till you get punched in the nose. And yeah. so Michelangelo had this big dream for, for what his life was going to be like. And then life got in the way. And things happened. And even the great Michelangelo had to deal with that. It's what we do our, in our lives. We have our big plans. And then Gee, along comes a, a health issue, or we have kids and our priorities change. Or you wake up and your career's essentially done. You, you know that the arc of your life is, is not going up. It is not going up. And everything that you hoped you were going to accomplish, well, you've done it, and gee, is that it? So I keep thinking hubris to humility. Ah, yeah, I like that. Hubris to humility. That was was that Michelangelo. That was that was the the art you talked. You started off talking about the ark. That's the final chapter of Michelangelo's life. Is that he rose with great hubris, thinking he was going to conquer the world. But by the end of his life, he was coming down. He was humble, but he was also wiser. People talk about his last years. Did he live his retirement or his last years as a glorious autumn? or an embittered decline. Well, you could make a case for both of those, but it may very well have been that it was a mixture of both, that mix of good and bad that we call life itself. Oh, finito. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Gene Openshaw about his book, Michelangelo at Midlife. Thanks, Gene. Thank you, Rick. Gene and I talk about the portrait of Michelangelo that's included in Raphael's masterpiece painting, The School of Athens. It's on view in the Vatican Museums in Rome, in the Raphael Rooms, there in the lineup to the Sistine Chapel. You'll hear that in a short extra to this week's show on our website. You can look at New York City as a churning microcosm of the world as it is, especially when it comes to the number of ethnic groups who live there and the languages and dialects they speak. 
In the coming years, many languages are in danger of disappearing altogether as new generations assimilate as English speakers and leave the ways and the words of their parents and grandparents behind. Ross Perlin sees this as a tragic loss, not only of languages, but of the ways of looking at the world that these languages provide. He explains next on Travel with Rick Steves. New York City is the most linguistically diverse city in the history of the world. Walk along Roosevelt Avenue in Queens, and you might hear a handful of the hundreds of languages that are spoken along that street and in New York City. It seems like being a linguist in New York City would feel like a kid in a candy store. But it's also a reminder of a troubling trend. Over half of the world's 7,000 languages are expected to disappear during the next century. And linguists and language keepers the world over are in a race to document, map, and preserve these endangered languages. Dr. Ross Perlin is one such linguist. His book, Language City, A Fight to Preserve Endangered Mother Tongues in New York, is a portrait of contemporary New York City through six speakers of little-known and overlooked languages. And he joins us today from his home in New York City. Ross, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Rick. I, I never even considered that New York City might be such a fascinating linguistic story. In fact, as you, as you write, the most linguistically diverse city in the history of the world. That's quite a statement. When people think about endangered languages, smaller languages, indigenous languages, they, you know, they often think of a distant mountain or a far-off island somewhere, and, and that's certainly true historically. But now, with people moving all over the globe, with urbanization happening everywhere, uh, there are actually speakers of endangered languages right next door for many of us. And, you know, New York has always been a very diverse place. It's a city that is known for immigration. But what's happened in the last few decades is just, you know, something extraordinary. And, and New York is not alone. It's happening in other cities where speakers of languages from all over the globe, and indeed the last speakers of endangered languages in some cases, are now coming to these shores. As a travel writer and somebody who just... My mission is to inspire and equip Americans to, you know, venture beyond Orlando. I want them to have some culture shock. You can just stay in New York City if you don't want to take the time and money to fly around the world, and and you can really do an amazing job of introducing yourself to much of the world. I think that's exactly the way to see it. You know, so many people, when they come to New York, of course, they're thinking about Rockefeller Center, the Empire State Building, the great museums, and so on. But how many make it out to a place like Queens, which is the epicenter of this linguistic diversity, because people have come there from all over the world? You can experience all these languages and cultures within just a few blocks of each other. Well, take us on a walk down Roosevelt Avenue in Queens. As a linguist, what I mean, I could walk down it and I might just see, you know, interesting shops and uh, a lot of diversity in, in the people that are around me. But what would you see as a linguist? The lens of language, I think, is a special one, because especially oral language, you know, most languages historically have been oral, have not had writing systems. That's been a pretty recent thing in language for just a smaller number of languages. You know, so you can, you know, you look at the signs. There's a lot that the signs will tell you for sure. I mean, you're walking along, you know, Roosevelt Avenue is one of these great streets that's just you know, teeming with life and, and tons of restaurants. Of course, you know, from the signs, you can tell, let's say, you know, first you're probably in this sort of South Asian world, which people might think from the outside, okay, this is Indian. These are Indian restaurants, but actually look a little more closely. And we're actually talking about a lot of people from Pakistan and Bangladesh and Nepal. And then actually you listen a little more closely, you'd find that's Tibetan or that's Newari or that's, you know, which is the, the mother tongue of Kathmandu or, you know, there's 
dozens and dozens of languages just from Nepal that are spoken there. And there are institutions, little, uh, you know, hometown associations, little stores, little restaurants that actually represent all those cultures. And if you listen to what people are actually speaking, mm. oh, they're from that part of the Himalaya, they're from that part of the plains area. And so actually, you know, it becomes hundreds of languages and you walk a little bit further and you're actually in a sort of <laughs> microcosm of Latin America. Now, Ross, a couple things you mentioned. First of all, you used the word mother tongue. The subtitle of your book, Language City, The Fight to Preserve Endangered Mother Tongues in New York. What is a mother tongue? Well, you know, it's interesting. In different languages, people refer to it in different ways. In English, we, we say mother tongue usually. In Tibetan, for instance, they say palke, which means father tongue. But in either case, what we're talking about is, you know, the sort of native language that you hear from your family at home, the first language often. And, you know, so many people in a place like New York are multilingual. Half of all New Yorkers speak a language other than English at home. And many speak four, five, six, seven, eight languages routinely. But the mother tongue is something special, and that's often the one that's kind of most endangered, okay. right? It's not the one that's in school or in official right. business. As, as a linguist, that's probably the, the fertile soil for you to dig into. <laughs> well, it represents the vast majority of the world's 7,000 languages, you know, only a few hundred yeah. of which are really official. And these are the languages which are least documented, that we know the least about and have a lot of the greatest richness. So now you write in your book, Never before have cities like New York been so linguistically various, and they may never be again. But this new hyperdiversity has hardly been mapped, let alone understood or supported. Why, this is what a linguist does, right? Why does this matter, and, and what is mapping these languages, and what's the value of understanding them? The paradox is that just as all these languages are arriving in cities like New York, and I should also say Los Angeles, Chicago, San Francisco, and so on, they're also in danger of disappearing. They're endangered back home. They're also, you know, people are feeling a massive pressure to shift not only to English, but to Spanish or to Mandarin or other large languages. So, you know, linguists do all kinds of things. And unfortunately, only a small portion actually focus on endangered languages. But uh, those of us who do, we create dictionaries, we create recordings of languages which haven't been recorded, we document their grammar. And mapping, quite literally, is something we've done here in New York, where we've created a language map showing over 700 uh, of these mother tongues as spoken all around the metropolitan area, including you know the, the wider metro region. So the map is literally locating where these languages are, are spoken. Yes, focused on significant sites, restaurants, community centers, churches, mosques. And it's actually an incredible guide, I think, for people who want to just go through New York. It's freely available, languagemap.nyc. I would love to see that. Next Check time I'm out. in New York, I'm going to get my hands on it. I'll, I'll contact you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Dr. Ross Perlin. We're looking at the language landscape of New York City. Ross's book is Language City, and it explores the past, present, and future of the most linguistically diverse city in history. Ross is a linguist, author, translator who teaches at Columbia. He's written for The New York Times, The Guardian, Harper's, and more. You can find out more about Ross and his work at rossperlin.com. That's spelled P-E-R-L-I-N. Now, Ross, in your book, you talk about New York, and originally, of course, it was New Amsterdam. What languages would we have heard way back in those days? Would it have also been a, a collection of languages? So one thing that, that my book Language City tries to do is tell a linguistic history of the city, which, you know, every city is multilingual in different ways, and, and, and language is a deeper lens. That's part of what I'm arguing than mm -hmm. just saying, oh, they're from such and such country or so on. Many of these countries didn't exist in the time of, say, New Amsterdam. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's special about New Amsterdam and later New York is that, you know, this was founded as a Dutch colony, right? Different from the, the English colonies around it, which were pretty much at that time kind of English only, as well as the Native American languages that they were encountering. But it was founded as a Dutch colony that was an entrepot of peoples, a melting pot already, a mix uh, such that there were reported to be 18 languages spoken there just within the first few years by about 400 people. And these were European languages, African languages brought by enslaved Africans, as well as Native American languages. So that was already the template from the very beginning in New Amsterdam. You, in your book, I just think it's interesting, you follow six people who each speak an endangered language in New York City, and they are your your gateway to understanding this diversity. Uh, for instance, a woman named Karen teaches uh, what Lenape, the, the indigenous language of New York before uh, the white people came. You told a kind of a funny story about how she got a parking ticket <laughs> in what should be her homeland, and she was just coming into town to, to working so hard for her mission, which is to keep that language alive. Lenape is a language which is down to one native speaker at this point. And, you know, this was the the native language of the whole New York area, stretching up pretty far even into New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Now there's, as I say, one native speaker in her 80s who's in Canada, but then there's a group of people who are Lenape people, but who have been learning the language as a second language and who are trying to revive it. Karen was one of them. She passed away last year. Um, Mm. But she would come down here, not for pay or anything like that. She would come down a 10-hour trip and and teach the language, bring the language back to its homeland, essentially. Uh, And she would teach it here at the Endangered Language Alliance. Indeed, one day she got a parking ticket for being here, just for bringing her language here on, you know, what was her her people's land. But uh, she was an extraordinary person. And it's kind of a story of how languages are being revitalized, especially Native American languages. But Mm. languages all over are actually in the teeth of this endangerment situation, actually being revitalized in some extraordinary ways as well. So when you say native speaker, we're, we're not referring to Native American. It's just a person who, who has spoken it from birth, right? And mm-hmm. I, I would think in the future, for all these languages that are endangered, you'll lose the native speakers, but you'll still have revivalists that keep it alive. And it's your mission as a linguist is to not lose the value of that language, even though there's no more native speakers of that language. It could be that languages will survive through the, the revivalists and through online archives, which we're helping to build, and who knows, AI, other technologies. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are also now cases showing that there can be sort of new native speakers, and some some languages now, you know, are having native speakers for the first time in, in a century, where the parent has taught themselves as a revivalist, and then they teach their kids, and wow. a sort of new native speaker comes into being. So it is possible for, you know, languages to come back with enough So you can have, like, extraordinary a phoenix will. come rise up from yes. nothing. yeah. Um, Rasmina is one of the characters that you profile. Rasmina is somebody I've worked with for a number of years now on her language, which is called Seke, and it's spoken in Nepal, uh, in five villages of Nepal, that is, by a total of about 700 people. Now, it's inside Nepal, but it's very close to the Tibetan border. The people are Tibetan Buddhist. Uh, The language is actually historically closer to Tibetan, but quite distinct from it. Uh, So that language, Seke, you know, had never been written down, had never really been documented, and now about 200 of those 700 speakers have come to New York and are living in just a few buildings here. So, you know, she's pretty much the youngest speaker of that language in her early 20s and is devoted to finding a way to carry it on, at least document it and share it with the world. Now, if I saw these people, I'd think, oh, there's a couple hundred Nepalese people speaking Nepali. But of course, if you're Nepalese, you'd know that was a unique language, Seke. 
they must find some practical value or they just must find some comfort in, in living in the same neighborhood. What is the gravitational kind of pull of this common language for people so far from where they were raised? A language is just so fundamental to cultural life, but also just to feel a feeling of home and being able to be yourself. So, you know, there you could think of almost concentric circles or, you know, ways that people kind of gather and settle in a city like New York, which we've tried to trace through this mapping and through the book, such that the Seke speakers have been able to sort of carve out their own couple of buildings, which are not 100% Seke, but they also have neighbors who speak who are more just Nepali speakers or Tibetan speakers, also some who are from Jamaica or from Pakistan or other places. But within their very tight-knit community, they can support each other in all kinds of ways. Uh, you know, it's almost mm-hmm. like an extended family, basically. And with their many languages, they can sort of live among uh, Nepalis and Tibetans and, of course, speak English in their jobs and other things, too. Another interesting person you wrote about was Ibrahima. Ibrahima is from Guinea in West Africa. Uh, again, super multilingual, speaker of a language called Maninka, but also learning you know, French and Arabic as a Muslim, French because it was the colonial language there and still used in school, speaks you know, beautiful English as well. But you know, his project now for the last many years has been on a writing system called Unko, which is one of the most successful sort of new writing systems in the world, pioneered in the 1940s in Guinea, to unite speakers of a whole group of languages in West Africa called the Manding languages. And the writing system is really spreading. It works very well for these languages. It's sort of extraordinary looking in its design. And here is Ibrahima now with many thousands of speakers of these languages who've come to, especially Harlem and the Bronx, trying to sort of bring this new way of writing. What an eye-opener, all of this, just to look at one city and its linguistic diversity. Ross Perlins joining us on Travel with Rick Steves from his office at the Endangered Language Alliance in Manhattan. They're mapping the linguistic diversity of New York City and trying to preserve the world's most endangered languages. Their website is elaalliance.org, and you can see their work at languagemap.nyc. Ross has also just released his book, Language City, the Fight to Preserve Endangered Mother Tongues in New York. It focuses on the stories of six speakers of little-known languages. You'll find web links to all of that in the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Ross, tell us about the Endangered Language Alliance. The Endangered Language Alliance was founded in 2010 by linguists working with a poet and a whole range of New Yorkers who realized that living in the most linguistically diverse city, probably in the history of the world, there was something that should be done about that, that it was an extraordinary opportunity for linguists and language activists, ordinary New Yorkers, teachers, students, anybody interested to record those languages, to create a gathering place for people who wanted to do projects around their languages. And we've now recorded speakers of over 100 different languages from from Hmm. all over. Uh, We've done this mapping project. We do education projects. We have all kinds of public events. It's just, as far as we know, still the only organization devoted to urban linguistic diversity that just says New York is a place that's open to and rich with these languages. And, you know, they may be less tangible, perhaps, than, say, all of the restaurants and all these other things, but they're no less a part of the city's extraordinary cultural landscape. Russ, if you could wave a magic wand and shape the future linguistically of New York City... What would it look like? What does healthy multilingualism look like? 
healthy multilingualism is such a good term, uh, and it's really the way we need to be thinking. Nobody denies that you know English is absolutely the lingua franca of the city and is you know an essential part of living in the city, as in the U.S. Uh, and I should say the many Englishes, because really every variety of English is also spoken here. That includes you know Singapore English, Indian English, you know the various English Creoles of the Caribbean. So all the many Englishes. Uh, but also that there should be room for these other 700 plus languages here, that there should be uh, language access uh, for city services such that people can get interpretation in courts and hospitals and, and be able to sort of do the essential things they need to do in the language that they're most comfortable in, uh, especially where it's it's most essential for their lives. Uh, also a place for people to sort of revive and explore and hold on to and transmit their languages and learn languages. I mean, that, that's an incredible opportunity that, you know, as somebody coming to New York or living in New York, you can find someone here who speaks just about, you know, any language, certainly all the larger languages and many smaller ones. But what do you say to a skeptic who just feels, as a matter of practicality, you can't have everything printed in every language and you can't, you know, it just all falls apart. And uh, immigrant... Um, family could be actually at a disadvantage if they don't embrace the, the lingua franca of a society. How can it be practical? Because i got to say, I've always thought it's just practical to have one language. Uh, but, of course, it, it has to be more thoughtful than that. I think some people overestimate the, you know, one language to rule them all. Uh, because, first of all, that would, you know, whose language would that be? Everybody kind of imagines it would be their language. But how would we feel if suddenly the official language became Mandarin Chinese or, or Spanish, uh, you know, at, for a native English speaker. So, and of course, the dream of Esperanto was to find some sort of middle ground for everybody. But the reality is we're coming from so many different backgrounds, and those should all be kind of valued and, and find a place. But, you know, the practical side certainly is, you know, that there should be a lingua franca. Uh, it's just not to impose that as a sort of mother tongue. And nobody's suggesting that there should be translations of every sign into 700 plus languages, which obviously there's just not enough space on any sign to do that. So, you know, it's where there's a need, where there's a desire. And it's less, it's at least from where I'm coming from, about a sort of legalistic, like, okay, we need to do this or that, but about seeing it not as a burden, but as a sort of wealth, actually, and that we can learn from these languages with the, with the, the knowledge that they have, the cultural richness that there's an incredible wealth here that we can learn from. You know, we have, there are all kinds of free resources in the city for people to learn English, and that's very important. Uh, but also there should be resources and abilities for people to learn, you know, other languages and to maintain those as well. So, so as not to let this richness just run through our fingers, but to actually celebrate it and enjoy it and, and use it. It seems kind of fundamental to raise an awareness that um, multilingualism is it's not a burden, but it's actually a reflection of the wealth and the, the richness of the diversity on this planet and how to celebrate it. Dr. Ross Perlin, best wishes with your mission with the Endangered Language Alliance, and thanks for writing Language City, the fight to preserve endangered mother tongues in New York. Thank you so much, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Andrew Wakeling and Sherry Court upload the shows to our website. Sheila Gerzoff handles affiliate promotions, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Look at Rick's checklist for what to pack in your suitcase and share tips with fellow travelers. It's part of our online travel forum that you'll find at ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.
My public television miniseries, Rick Steves' Art of Europe, takes you on an exciting sweep through the entire awe-inspiring story of European art history in six hours. Watch the series from the Parthenon to Picasso on your local station or stream it on PBS Passport or at ricksteves.com.